Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. After a busy week at NIPS, I am back home and on the line with Tuomas Sandholm. Tuomas is a professor in the computer science department at Carnegie Mellon University, as well as founder and CEO of two startups, Strategic Machine and Optimize Markets, as well as an author of the Best Paper Award-winning Safe and Nested Subgame Solving for Imperfect Information Games at this year's NIPS. Tuomas, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. It's a little bit of a tradition here to have our guests get started by telling us a little bit about their backgrounds and how they got involved in machine learning. And you sound like quite a busy guy with your two startups and posts at CMU. So feel free to take some time and let us know how all that fits together. Yeah, happy to. So I've been working on AI since around 1989. And in my lab at CMU, there are maybe 25 different research trends, maybe six of them active at any one time. We're probably best known for combinatorial auctions and uh, kidney exchange. So we run the nationwide kidney exchange for UNOS with our algorithms and game solving. So solving these large imperfect information games where we actually re- reach superhuman level at strategic reasoning this January by beating the top players in Heads Up No Limit Texas Hold'em. And my two startups, well, the first one of my current ones, I'm also a serial entrepreneur with successful startups in the past, but um, the first one, Optimized Markets, is really like a combinatorial sales support system for advertising campaigns cross-media. So in TV, both linear TV and non-linear, streaming, both TV and radio, and display advertising and so forth. And where we're optimizing the allocation of inventory to campaigns and pricing and scheduling and so forth. And the newer startup, which is really brand new, is called Strategic Machine, where we have taken this strategic reasoning technology that we have developed in my lab here at Carnegie Mellon over the last 14 years. And we are commercializing it across a wide range of applications ranging from, of course, recreational games like poker by, uh, to uh, business applications and automated negotiation, strategic pricing, product portfolio construction, auctions, and so on, all the way to uh, military applications like uh, cybersecurity, physical security, physical military, and even in steering biological evolution and adaptation for treatment planning. Well, that's a pretty broad set of applications. Yeah, when you're doing the early stages of a startup with a platform technology like this, really the first challenge and the first order to do after the technology is ready is to really prioritize the markets and pick and choose where it makes Mm -hmm. the most benefit and where you can penetrate the fastest and uh, doing that prioritization. And we're actually in that process right now. So the paper that we want to talk about is Safe and Nested Subgame Solving for Information in Perfect Games. And it sounds like the big distinction there between what you're working on and some of the other things we've seen in the kind of machine learning applied to game arena is in that imperfect information part. Can you tell us a little bit about that and why that's important? Yeah, that's exactly right. So when you talk about games like checkers, chess, or go, where AI has seen a lot of uh, success 
they are what's called perfect information games. So when it is a player's turn to move, the player knows the exact state of the world. In contrast, in most real-world applications, where you have more than one party acting, they're what's called imperfect information games, where when it's your turn to move, you don't really know the state of the world exactly. So there's hidden information. And that can come from us not observing what chance has done so far, Mm -hmm. as in, let's say, POMDPs, but there's an additional element that there are other players, at least one other player, and you may not even observe what the other player has done in the game so far. And also the other player may have observed different things about what chance has done so far than you have. So now you have private information. You know things mm-hmm. that your opponent or opponents don't know, and vice versa, they know things that you don't know. So now it becomes much harder to solve because you have to think about issues not present in perfect information games. Like how do my actions signal to my opponent about my private information? And conversely, how do my opponent's actions, uh, how should they signal to me about the opponent's private information? And so the approaches that you need to take to solve these games are these two different classes of games are very different then? They are exactly very, very different. And one difference at an intuitive level is that in a complete perfect information game, which is also called a complete information game, you can actually solve a sub game of the game tree with information from that sub tree only. That is not true in imperfect information games. In perfect information games, you have to balance your strategies across the different sub-games, and that ties the whole game together so it doesn't decompose. Uh, The idea being that you've got a given player only has access to private information, but there's some other broader set of information that the other player has that you can't use in solving the sub-tree? Yes, that's right. And conversely, there's information you have that the other player or players don't have. And so you've applied this with pretty great success to poker. Can you talk a little bit about the, you know, poker as a field of application for these types of approaches and what some of the past uh, approaches have been to solving it? Yeah, happy to. So to me, poker is not really an application. To me, poker is the benchmark, and in particular, Heads Up No Limit Texas Hold'em has become the leading benchmark in the AI community for testing these application-independent algorithms for solving imperfect information games. Okay. And poker actually goes way back in the history of game theory. So if you think about early pioneers then like von Neumann, Morgenstern, Nash, and so on, they actually were working on poker as perhaps the lead application of game theory. And they were working on small, very small variants of poker that could be solved by hand, like what's called coon poker. But now we're able to solve these much larger games where you have a full deck and you have the full complexity of, let's say, No Limit Texas Hold'em. If I can interrupt briefly, one of the distinctions you make in the paper is that with, is between Limit Texas Hold'em and No Limit Texas Hold'em. And I am not a poker aficionado, but what you, you specifically call out that the former, that the you know, limit Texas Hold'em has 10 to the 13 decision points, whereas uh, No Limit creates a much bigger game of 10 to 161 uh, decision points. What does all that mean? And what's different about the games that makes them so different in terms of the number of possibilities? 
Yeah, that's right. Those numbers are exactly right. So we can talk about the size of the game based on the number of different situations that the player can face. And in limit, it's 10 to the 13. In no limit, it's 10 to the 161. So fundamentally different. And what makes it different is that in limit Texas Hold'em, whenever it is your turn to bet or raise, there's only one size that you can make. So the branching Mm. factor in your actions is like two or three. Okay. In contrast, in no limit, you can bet any number of your chips up to all of your chips. So the branching factor is much larger. Got it. And so based on the different kind of sizes and scopes of these games, with the smaller games, one way to solve it is to just solve the whole game. Is yes, that right? Yes, that's exactly right. So like the in 2005, my student Andrew Gilpin and I, we solved exactly a previous AI challenge problem called Rhode Island Hold'em. And that has okay. 10 to the power of nine di- uh, different situations. And we solve it as a whole using first a technique called lossless abstraction. And then the remaining game, which was about 10 to the 7 or 10 to the 8, that we could solve holistically. And similarly, Michael Bowling's research group from Alberta uh, near optimally solved the two-player limit Texas Hold'em by uh, first kind of doing the lossless abstraction and then having a custom algorithm for holistically solving the whole game near optimally. And what does it mean to do abstraction as a solution for a game like this? Yeah, abstraction means that you are generating a smaller but strategically similar game, and then you are solving that smaller but similar game using a Nash equilibrium finding algorithm. And the first work on abstraction really in games was manual. So people did the abstraction phase manually and the equilibrium finding phase computationally. And this started around really over 15 years ago. And nowadays, for the last, I would say, 12 years or 13 years, both phases have been done computationally. So there are abstraction algorithms that will find, just from the rules of the game, find a strategically similar but small enough game to solve or almost exactly solve using equilibrium finding algorithms. Is there a simple example of abstraction applied to poker that you can give? Yes. Let me give you two kinds of examples. So one kind of example is information abstraction or abstracting the actions of chance. So I might say that in uh, poker, you are dealt ace-ace or you dealt king-king. Those are different situations, but they're really very similar. So I could say that, okay, I'm going to treat them as if they were the same. Okay. And the other form, also known as action abstraction, is abstracting out the player's actions. So, for example, I might say that if you bet 200 chips, it's almost the same as if you bet 201 chips. So I'm going to treat them as if they were the same. Okay. And so does that tend to manifest itself like some kind of binning or uh, quantization type of uh, approach? You could call it that, but the abstraction techniques are really much more sophisticated than just clustering. You have to Ah, think about their downstream effects and all of that. So, for example, if I have the ace of spades and ace of hearts and king of spades and king of hearts, those might seem very similar in the beginning, but, you know, depending on whether they end up in a flush later, they might look very different. I mean, depending on whether they end up in in a flush or a straight and so on. Well, the other hand that was originally similar might actually be very different later. And so the abstraction is, sounds like a key piece in solving 
these types of games, but not something that scales for the very large games? No, I would say almost the opposite is that for the very large games, you need to do some form of abstraction because you cannot holistically solve these very large games. So this information abstraction we talked about, an action abstraction, and then there's also a third approach, which is what has traditionally been called phase-based abstraction, where you solve some head of the game and have some sort of approximation for the rest of it instead of solving the rest of it exactly. And then you keep doing it over and over. Ah, got it. And so the approach that you describe in the paper that uses abstraction as a way, as kind of a framework for getting to the solution. It can, it can, although just to be clear, abstraction algorithms were not the contribution of this particular paper. Abstraction in imperfect information game solving and poker goes way back, at least to 2001, if not earlier. So the new contribution in this paper was a little different. Uh, so why don't you tell us a little bit about, you know, what this paper contributes to, you know, this broader problem and with the example application in poker. Okay, yeah. So all of these algorithms are game independent, so they're not specific to poker, but we have a lot of experiments in poker in the paper. So what the new techniques are in this paper, they are what we call safe and nested sub-game solving techniques. So let me try to unpack that a little bit here. So safe means that we can guarantee that as we refine our solution, so again, these start by computing a core solution or what we call a blueprint solution for the whole game. And then you start refining your strategy to make it better in sub-games that you reach during play. So offline, you compute the blueprint. And then online, when you're playing, you refine the strategy in those parts of the search space that you actually reach. And you can afford to do that because there's less game tree left than in the whole game. And you can also afford to do it in a finer and finer model or finer and finer abstraction, the closer to the end of the game you are. But the problem is, as we talked about earlier in the podcast, in that these imperfect information games, the sub-games don't separate out. They don't decompose. So how I should play in this current sub-game depends on how I should play in other sub-games. So I can't really reason about them independently. And here, what we're doing, we're taking the blueprint strategy that gives values for different alternatives that the opponent could have taken to get here. And we use that type of reasoning to enable sub-game solving that has guarantees. So it guarantees that the solution quality is no worse than that of the blueprint strategy. So even our worst case nemesis couldn't take us for more than it could take the blueprint. And similarly, if the values from the blueprint are off by a little bit compared to what ideal play would give for different states, we can guarantee that the answers that come out of the end game solver or sub game solver also are off by only a little bit. So that's the safe part. Then there are two other innovations in the paper. One is that we can do much better than prior safe end game solving techniques by taking into account the fact that actually there are several uh, techniques there to do so, but one of them I'd like to highlight here, which is what we call taking into account the gifts that the opponent has given us so far. So if the opponent has made a mistake in the game so far, we can afford to give back to the opponent as much payoff as the expected mistake cost our opponent so far. 
And you might say, why do we want to give anything back? Well, that allows us to have a bigger space of safe strategies to optimize over, and we can do better against other hands or other private information in general that, that the opponent might have. So that gives us more opportunity to worry about hands that the opponent is really actually likely to have and do even better against those hands when we can, for some unlikely hands that the opponent is going to have, which would have been mistakes to play into this situation, we can afford to give some money back. If I'm understanding this piece, it's a bit counterintuitive. Can you provide some intuition or example of how this plays out in a game? Yeah, absolutely. So if you're a poker player, you know that that 2-7 offsuit is the worst starting hand in Texas Hold'em. And that should be folded right away. But let's say we get later into the game and there are two sevens and a two on the board. Now, if mm-hmm. you're there with a two seven, that's a great hand because you have a full house. But if I think about it, I don't know your cards, but I can pretty much figure out that you don't have the full house because if you had two seven on in your hand, you would have already folded. Mm-hmm. So let's say that the mistake of getting to this current situation with two seven would have been $100 for you. Then I can afford Mm -hmm. to give you $100 back just in case in that scenario where you have that full house. In other words, Mm. I have to not be as defensive against that two seven hand. And because I don't have to be as defensive there, I can use the flexibility of balancing my strategies to play better against you, against other hands you are more likely to have, like for example, a pair of aces or a pair of kings and so forth. Okay, got it. And then the final piece in this paper, final conceptual piece, is this nested endgame solving or nested subgame solving, where we are not just taking the traditional approach of solving the endgame anew and then playing it out, but we are actually resolving it over and over every time the opponent has made a move. So as we get closer and closer to the end of the game, we can actually add the opponent's moves into our model if the opponent has played actions that were not in our model in the first place. So that way we don't get confused as to what the opponent has exactly done and how much money is in the pot and so forth. And we can still do this in a way that is provably safe. And a lot of the paper is concerned with this formal guarantees. How does this method perform? Oh, it performs very well. So we actually reach superhuman level with this technique. And just to be clear, we reach superhuman level by playing our AI called Libratus against four of the top 10 human players at Heads Up No Limit Texas Hold'em in January in this huge 120,000 hand 20-day event. And we beat them with high statistical significance and by a big margin. And this endgame solving techniques was one of the three new algorithms that we had in the three different modules of Libratus. Okay. And this algorithm, does the paper give someone what they would need to implement the algorithm? Or Yes, yes. So actually, let me go back on your previous question also. And in addition to humans, we have shown that Libratus beats the best prior AI, which was called Baby Tartanian 8, which won the okay. annual computer poker competition in 2016. So Libratus actually beats Baby Tartanian 8 by a huge margin of 63 millibig blinds per hand. So just to clarify, we're not just able to beat the best humans, we're also able to beat the best prior AI. Mm, Got it. And what was that unit? 63 what? Uh, Yeah, good. Good question. 63 millibig blinds per game. And that's a big blind is a measure of the size of the ante in poker. And millibig blind is one one thousandth 
of that. And if you're a poker player and you don't like to use milli big blinds per game as we do in AI, it's called 6.3 big blinds per 100. That's just okay. another way of saying the same thing. Okay. And that's a big uh, margin of victory. So typically when the AIs play each other in the annual computer poker competition, the top two AIs are separated maybe by 10 or 20 milli big blinds per hand. But Libratus beats Baby Tartanian 8, which was the best prior AI, by 63 milli big blinds per hand. And so you were about to describe the how someone might go about implementing this for poker or another game. Yeah, so we do lay out the algorithms in the paper and we prove their safety. Of course, these are fairly complex algorithms, to be honest, especially if you run them on a supercomputer. So it's not that easy to implement, but we tried to make it to do our best to explain how they're done. And are they, is that the typical way that you'd run them on a supercomputer? Depends on the game. So most games you probably could run uh, run on a laptop, but when we get into these very large games, you can still run them on a laptop, but then you're not in doing as well as you would on a on a supercomputer. And for the competition, were you running them on a supercomputer? Yes, that's right. We were running on Bridges, which is the newest supercomputer at the Pittsburgh Supercomputing Center. Okay. And, you know, this is a, a, an evolving game with humans. So each of the moves was then input into the, you know, the supercomputer and it would run. What, what's the typical response time between, you know, after entering the human's latest move to uh, getting back what the machine's next move should be? Yeah, just to be clear. So the, uh, the humans played through a browser-based UI. So there was no human actually entering the moves into the supercomputer like there was with Deep Blue, say, playing chess. So it goes quite quickly. The entry of data back and forth goes very quickly because it's all automated. And the thinking time, well, in the first two betting rounds, the AI doesn't think at all. It has pre-computed its strategy. And then when it, or I should say typically, it doesn't think at all. And then it typically starts thinking on the first move of the third betting round. And that's where it thinks the longest. Overall, if we think about a game of Heads Up No Limit Texas Hold'em, these top humans were uh, playing on average at 20 seconds per game. So not per move, 20 seconds per game. And there's a big difference between the humans. Some of them may have been going at like 17 seconds. Others may have taken 25 seconds by on average, but pretty much 20 or 21 seconds on average. Libratus played at 13 seconds per average, uh, per, per game. So we were playing okay. a little bit faster than the top humans, but by and large at the same speed on average. But it's interesting, mm -hmm. the thinking pattern is very different. So humans think also on the first two betting rounds while we don't typically, or sometimes in certain situations, uh, the AI will think there too, but typically not. And the funny part, in my opinion, is that humans typically think the longest when there's a lot of money in the pot, because that is a big decision. In contrast, the AI does the opposite. The AI thinks longer if there's less money in the pot because that's when there is more game tree left. So there's more to be thinking about. So it can be quite frustrating for humans when they're used to playing other humans who think a lot for on the big pots and go fast on the small pots when the AI does the opposite. It makes big decisions instantaneously almost. And then on the tiny decisions, it can take a long time to think. And so this was one of three modules that Liberatus used to, in this, this most recent match. Are the other two published or are there plans to publish them? 
we have talked about them. So, for example, in my keynote talk at the International Joint Conference on Artificial Intelligence in August, I talked about all three modules, so you can find that on YouTube. And we are about to publish the whole thing. It's uh, currently uh, still under review. Okay. And going back to you mentioning this running on a supercomputer, what language or other tools does it use? Is it written in something like a Python or no, no, something not at all. totally different? Python would be way too slow for this. So we wrote it in C++. Okay. And does it use uh, like an MPI for inter-process communications yes, or something that's right. like that? Okay. Interesting. Interesting. And do you, are there any plans to publish source code for this and the other algorithms? No, not really. And it wouldn't be usually that helpful. The supercomputing codes, they're very, very complex. We don't really have any plans to do that. But with some other students in my lab, we're, we're writing a game-solving framework that's kind of easier to understand. It wouldn't be as scalable as this, but we might open source something like that so people can use it for teaching. And like I use in my AI courses, when I teach AI, we do some amount of imperfect information game-solving there as well for small games. And there, there we do provide source code so that the students can start from that. Yeah, I would think folks would be very interested in that. Where can folks learn more about your lab and your work? I would say the best spot to start would be my homepage. So www.cs.cmu.edu slash tilde Sandholm. So S-A-N-D-H-O-L-M. And if you go into the section on equilibrium finding and abstraction in games on my homepage, that's where you can mm -hmm. find our papers on this topic. But there's a section for all the different strands of research going on in my lab, so you can find papers on all of the different topics. Awesome. Well, Tuomas, thank you so much for taking some time to chat with us about your paper, and congratulations on the award. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Thanks. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening and for your continued feedback and support. For more information on Twomas or any of the topics covered in this episode, head on over to twomalai.com slash talk slash 99. Of course, we'd be delighted to hear from you, either via a comment on the show notes page or via Twitter, directly to me at at Sam Charrington or to the show at at Twomalai. Thanks once again for listening and catch you next time.